unexpectedly, they were asked to start rounding up and killing Jews. And very remarkably, in that group, their leader, Wilhelm von Trapp, he gave them the choice to step forward and say, no, I'm not going to do that, or to just follow the orders and do it. And Van Trapp even told them, I don't believe in this order. I I find it a horrible order. Nevertheless, only very few men stepped forward and most continued. And later they were tried after the war and then they were asked, why didn't you step forward? And they said, I didn't want to be seen as a coward. Good evening, good morning, or happy afternoon, whenever you're tuning into this. This time, I sit down with Alette Smullers, who is the Professor of International Crimes at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. She is the author of Perpetrators of Mass Atrocities, Terribly and Terrifyingly Normal, and she's also the co-host of the podcast, Of the same name of the subtitle of the book, the podcast is called Terribly and Terrifyingly Normal, where she discusses acts of human cruelty and what drives the people who have committed these acts. And that's exactly what we talk about on today's podcast. We we go deep into mass atrocities. We go deep into the complexities of violence, not just the acts of violence, but the types of people who commit them. The types of perpetrators we get into, you know, who are fanatics, what separates a fanatic from a criminal mastermind, who is a devoted warrior, you know, it sound, that sounds like a good thing. And it turns out it is not. And we, we get into followers, too, at the end. Followers are the biggest group of perpetrators. And that is why Alette finds them the most interesting. And, and I find them very interesting. Because, you know, what is a perpetrator without people to carry out their duties, without without people to follow along and participate in these atrocities, you know, through different means and through different motivations? We also discuss the fact that everyone has the capacity to become a perpetrator of mass atrocities, which was quite unsettling for me, quite uncomfortable to talk about. And... It wasn't anything to do with Alette. It it was more my own realization that no one is immune to committing horrific acts, including myself. And when put in the right environment, when put in the right situation, genetics also play a factor that you and I can be swayed to do horrible things, terrible things. And that's part of being a human being. And Alette would argue, and and I also feel the same after this conversation, that a way to combat the participation in mass atrocities is to to learn about them and to educate yourself, which is part of the reason why I wanted to record this podcast and listen to someone who is an expert in mass atrocities like Alette. And I had a great time speaking with her. It it was a beautiful conversation. It was a dark conversation. Uh, There were funny aspects to the conversation, definitely a wide range of topics. And we were fortunate enough to record for almost three hours, which allowed us to go deep on many of those topics. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Alette Smolers on the Oxoro podcast. Alette Smolers, thank you for joining me on the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, I, I have to ask you, before we even jump into your book, uh, how, how did you become interested in violence and mass atrocities? Because it is some horrific, heavy shit that you've chosen to study. But it, it also has, you know, you point out the... Uh, the extreme nuance and even to a certain extent, like the beauty between certain examples of people. How, how did you even become attracted to that in the first place? Well, I started reading books about uh, the resistance in the Second World War, the Dutch resistance fighters in the Second World War. And uh, they were based on, on true stories, but fictionalized to a certain extent. And I just found them very fascinating to read which started to trigger my thoughts that I said, well, if ever I would be in a war, I hope I would be courageous enough to, to be a resistant fighter, to fight for the weak, to protect the weak, the, the, the people who target it. Um, so that was what I was doing. But then at some point I thought, but who, because they were set obviously in the Second World War, and then suddenly I asked myself, well, but who would want to be that German Nazi soldier. He represents evil. And who then are these people? Doesn't everyone want to be a resistance fighter? And that got mm. me very intrigued. And that is, I think, how it started. Then I started to ask, well, who are these people and what motivates them? What drives them? How can you become that way? Yeah. What's, what were the the Dutch explorers doing in particular, were they the ones who were committing atrocities on other people or was it kind of a back and forth? Like what, what were you sort of identifying with when you were reading about them? Mostly with people who were, um, yeah, in the resistance movement. So you had people who uh, had uh, were hiding Jews in their houses, but that was mm. sometimes all they did. Well, I admire that as well, but that doesn't make a good story, obviously, if you write a whole book about it. So I identified more with the people uh, about whom the stories were written who were in those movements. And very often what they did is searched for safe houses, brought them their food, uh, sometimes an incident uh, cases they needed to to kill a betray uh, someone who betrayed them, um, but that was more rare. I what made me feel they were my heroes is that they tried to protect others and tried to find safe homes, um, put their own lives in jeopardy by providing them with food and other things. Yeah, were were there any books in particular or films when you were younger? that you saw that, that gave a depiction that really stood out to you of, of something it doesn't have to be directly related to what you're studying today, but something that like you could see a path from, I saw this or I read this. And then that's kind of like what really sparked my, my interest. Well, the, the books I just described sparked my interest. And okay. uh, then I was, was thinking, well, who are they? But then I read a book by Oriana Falacci. Uh, and it's, I think that the English title is Nothing and So Be It. I hope I uh, translate that correctly from the Dutch. And she was an Italian journalist who went uh, with an American unit in the Vietnam War. And she asked many of the questions that really triggered my, my interest. Also, why are these people fighting? Why are they putting their lives in jeopardy? So that was, I think, the next step. 
And then the the third and the fourth step were uh, a book by Robert J. Lifton, Nazi Doctors, where mm. he tried to understand uh, medical doctors are trained to help and cure people. Why in, in goodness name do they then play such a crucial role in the Holocaust? And he was also asking all the questions I had in mind. So these um, books triggered my interest. And then when I went to university, uh, one of my teachers gave me a book called War and Peace. And I think that was the final step to saying I want to do scientific research on that. So those are are the faces. But uh, since then, I've been reading so many books and saw so many films. So, yeah, they all kind of trigger my interest. Yeah, I I think if you see the thickness of the book War and Peace and you finish it, you should automatically get a PhD. I I I think I I probably saw that somewhere in high school or college library, and I was like, yeah, I think I'm good with the the Spark Notes for that one. Yes. Um. I so for my understanding of a lot of the the mass atrocities and the violence that you describe in the book, a lot of it until recently came from fictional accounts and and tv and and movies and then i became more interested in it and i I read things like man's search for meaning uh the other world war ii uh sort of biographical books and because i've seen so many things that have sort of engraved stereotypes of what nazi germany was like in my mind what what other uh sort of genocides or or terrorist acts are like in my mind i'm wondering do you and your colleagues get called in to film sets to consult at all like do do they do is that a thing where they'll reach out to people in your field and and say you know is this how a nazi would act like is is this how you know people actually are that are committing these types of things like do do you interact with film sets in that way not when they're making the film uh not in that sense but i was approached for the showing of a film then by mm. the audience uh, and the organizers could be Amnesty International or other NGOs or students who invite me then to give a lecture and to explain or uh, what happens in the film, if that's based on reality or not, or how realistic it is. So that I do, and I've done a few times, uh, but never for making documentaries uh, yet. Yeah, well, maybe... Uh for his last movie. I'm not sure what Quentin Tarantino's last movie is about. I I don't know if we'll make another one about Nazis, but maybe something's down the pipeline. Um, so, so the title of your book is perpetrators of mass atrocities, terribly and terrifyingly normal. Where does the phrase terribly and terrifyingly normal come from? It's a phrase from uh, Hannah Arendt's book on uh, Adolf Eichmann. She, uh, was a, uh, former German, uh, later American, uh, Jewish scholar, philosopher, who went for the New York Times to report on the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was not a top Nazi, but a middle cater, uh, but he played a crucial role in the genocide. So he was the one to organize the transport from the Jews to where they lived to the camps. So there was a fairly crucial role. And he wasn't on the list of the people tried in um, in Nuremberg because he wasn't that much a top leader. And 
uh, he managed to escape. He was briefly arrested, but they didn't really know who he was. So he was released and then escaped to uh, Argentina, where he was in the early 60s. He was abducted by the Israeli Secret Service and brought to Jerusalem to stand trial. Now, during the Nuremberg trial in 4546, uh, his name came up several times as one of the main people organizing the genocide, together with mm. Himmler and Heydrich, but they had both died as well. So Eichmann was the only one uh, alive. And he started to become a symbol of evil. The others, uh, mainly Goering and other people who were stood on trial in Nuremberg, felt they stood more on trial for being the aggressors in the Second World War, rather than responsible for the genocide. And they tried to push all the blame on Adolf Eichmann. So there too, he was sim symbolic for, for the evil of the Second World War. And when he went to trial in Jerusalem, so the Israeli Secret Service brought him to Jerusalem, everyone thought he would be a monster, would enter the courtroom. So everyone was, and there was television uh, coverage, so everyone was waiting, eagerly awaiting for this monster to appear. And then this uh, almost pathetic looking, ridiculously ordinary man came to this uh, glass booth where he had to sit. And mm. what struck people was that he was so terribly normal. And that's also this whole context, what I love about the phrase of Hannah Arendt, who then described him as terribly and terrifyingly normal. And I must admit, different people uh, see a slightly different meaning to it. But for me, it's it's the literal meaning that he is terrible and yet terrifyingly normal. And I found it yeah. so striking. Yeah. Yeah. Did So did people know what Adolf Eichmann looked like before the trial? And he just like deteriorated from the time he was working with the Nazis to trial? Or did people just not have any conception of what he looked like before they walk before he walked in I guess they didn't really have a good conception they might have had the pictures but then he stood such uh, was such a symbol for evil that people almost suspect he would look like how we paint the devil in cartoons so yeah. it was an exaggerated like he just has horns coming out of his forehead he he looks like the the rock in red body paint with horns Exactly. Al yeah. Almost. They were expecting something terrible. And then he came up and he was a very dull bureaucrat. That was what he was. Yeah. And and this difference between what people expected and what he really looked like. And of course, a man, if there were pictures of him, uh, I'm not sure how many people had seen those pictures, but a man in a Nazi uniform looks different from a man in a suit in a glass booth standing trial. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. The, I, was, I was just going to say there are, uh, I mean, this, is, this has been said before by a, a few of the stand-up comedians that I like, but th there's uh, this notion that uh, obviously what, happened with the nazis it's just like a preface to the joke is extremely terrible horrific actions uh inexcusable at all cost but damn did they look good in those uniforms those hugo boss suits were just like immaculate yeah. um so and yeah there is like this sense of when you have a 
you know, an old man and he's, you know, wearing normal clothes, he looks like an old man. But if you put some guy in a Hugo Boss suit or three piece suit or a uniform, he starts to have this larger than life effect on people, even though he's the same size. I I guess it's just like a caricature of what the uniform symbolizes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah. What, so what it what is that thing what's that thing inside us that wants people that we consider to be evil and consider to be uh like the most hated people on the planet what's that thing that wants them to be very intimidating physically cuz like I, i'm just i'm just trying to think of an example of course that that's different uh this obviously pales in comparison to you know, any sort of genocide. But if if I was getting bullied when I was a kid and I told all my friends about it and then they were like, oh yeah, like you're getting the shit kicked out of you. Like, let's go meet up and we'll, you know, we'll retaliate. And then they found out I was getting my ass kicked by like some four foot five skinny kid. They'd be like, who, like, how is he, we're not beating, like, this is, uh, this is pathetic. This is like, uh, not even, worth our time but there's like this thing inside us that wants these larger than life uh it's almost like we want the the evilness to match the the physicality of the person yeah well i think perpetrators um do not see themselves as perpetrators so they do not see themselves as doing horrible and bad thing and representing evil what they do see is or want to see and therefore see is that they fight for something against something else and very often they see themselves as good and what they fight as bad and evil and that is how they try to look and how they want to get the upper hand so Mm. um, in nazi germany For instance, if we go back to that example, they also felt morally superior. And I think it comes more from that moral superiority, the feeling that we are better than the Jews, but also better than the slaves, the Russians, many other groups, um, would show also in their uniform. So it's not representing evil, it's representing superiority, strength, uh, power, courage, um, goodness, uh, because that is how they feel about themselves. So so originally... The uniforms, like you said, were meant to symbolize superiority, goodness. And then over time, we've grown to give that a different meaning. We we've we now no longer associate a Nazi uniform with superiority like it was built to be, where it's like that is just a disgusting, horrific sort of piece of history. Yes, it's how yeah. you how you see something and of course a uniform mm. it's a uniform of militarized units so one of the important things obviously is also that it's useful in battle in war so that is the basics but then you build it up to show something that you want to symbolize and they symbolize superiority we now symbolize it with evil so it's the perception yeah. how you see things yeah no, I mean, I mean, th- that is a good point. I-, I went to Catholic high school and you do feel different putting on a uniform. You feel like I- I- I'd wake up in the morning and, you know, I'm wearing like a-, a shirt with holes in it from the night before. And then I put on a suit and a tie because that's what we had to wear every single day. 
and it sucked. Like I, I hated it, which is why I rarely wear ties now. But what when you're putting it on, you're like, oh, I feel like this energy. Like, am I better than everyone? Like I'm wearing a suit at 930 in the morning. Like I feel fired up. So it's it, it, it I feel like not only is it a symbol externally, but it also is something that makes the person themselves kind of like have walk around with a different energy. Yeah, that is very clearly what you see. And uh, and it comes from the uniform, but a lot of other things as well. And now that you're saying this, this reminds me of once when I was interviewing perpetrators in Rwanda in a prison. And we were just, um, there were two layers of the prison, the inside, then a outer area, and then really another area which uh, was closed off and I was in this outside area which was still part of the prison and I was watching a guard who was standing there waiting for some of the prisoners to come out and it was amazing to see the change in the man waiting a bit bored and walking around and the closer it got to the uh, inmates coming out of the prison the more he changed his way of moving, his behavior, made yeah. sure his uniform was correct, his cap was correct. And um, it was all authority, power that he tried to, to show. And yeah. it was amazing, the whole difference of his, his body language, his attitude, his, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, it, it is. Like I watch some, I see some of these videos where, you know, people talk about, having a better posture and that makes you feel feel more powerfully and my initial reaction is that's bullshit and then even as you're saying that I'm like straightening up a little bit I'm like damn I was slouching now I feel now I feel better just you know adjusting a little bit so that uh that makes sense um so it you've uh you've mentioned that the uh Hannah Arden's work and Adolf Eichmann's motivations are still hotly debated to this day. Uh, What's the source of that debate? It's how people see him, the um, how much they attach to different things they hear about him, and I believe also how they want to see him. I see him exactly as Eichmann described him: terribly and terrifyingly normal, and. I do believe that every one of us within particular circumstances could be able to commit horrendous crimes or at least be involved in them. Maybe not everyone could physically um, kill, torture, rape someone else, but we could definitely be somehow involved. And some people believe that much less, so that is part of the problem. And then they look for a lot of things where they can argue that Eichmann is very different from us. Now, that makes a lot for how you explain his his behavior. And with Eichmann, he was hotly debated from the start because Eichmann, uh, together with Raoul Hilberg, were two of the very first scholars who said perpetrators are actually very ordinary people. Before that, Mm. people wanted to make Nazi perpetrators uh, being very bad, deranged, evil people. And it's sometimes also dubbed the mad Nazi theory. So Mm. they said they are actually ordinary people. And that is not very popular because when we look at horrendous crimes and horrendous perpetrators, we want to distance ourselves from them. 
and we want to see them as different people, as something very far from us. But yeah. the most shocking thing is if you realize, well, in a certain circumstance, a certain certain uh, situations, I could do that as well. Then it comes very close, and that is very difficult to accept. And that understanding also makes that people see different things in a different way. Now, with Adolf Eichmann, um, when he was in Argentina at some point, he had a discussion with a journalist, which was a Nazi sympathizer. The journalist is a Dutch guy, Mm. Van Sassen. And he didn't believe that genocide actually took place. He thought that was all a big propaganda. So he interviewed Mm. Adolf Eichmann and then realized that the genocide did take place and that actually Adolf Eichmann showed pride in being part of it. And he said, there's one quote, I cannot say it literally, but something I I would jump uh, on their graves if I would have managed to kill all Jews. Now, Mm. some people see that as a typical sign of his fanaticism. Like you see, he was anti-Semitic, he hated Jews. It all comes from hatred, uh, contempt, and these motives. Whereas I believe that he said it not so much because he hated Jews originally, and that was the motive for him getting involved in the crime, but rather that he wanted to make a career, wanted to do good, and suddenly made himself a career in Nazi Germany by being the expert on the Jews. And he was, in Mm. my topology, I call him the devoted warrior. So he was obsessed with the tasks he was given. And he wanted to Mm. fulfill them well. And I believe that that was his motivation. So he was obsessed by fulfilling the task. And the task was to commit genocide on the Jews. So therefore, he showed pride in doing that. Not necessarily Mm. because he hated the Jews. If he would have given another task, he would have been shown pride fulfilling that. And... But these are the different perspectives people sometimes have and where there is sometimes still a debate. But most scholars, I believe, who do study Eichmann uh, agree that he was normal rather than up. So w- would it be a correct characteriza- characterization to say that Eichmann is like a, a motor with a strong horsepower that got put on the Nazi track? But if he was put on the finance track or if he was put on the acting track he would have just done both like worked as hard at whatever track he happened to land in yes that is what i believe i i believe he's a typical character who who wants to show off be the best um do well and gets obsessed with his tasks. So there's a part, he absolutely subdues himself to authority. He also internalizes the ideology. So the further, Mm. the more he did for the Nazis, the more he convinced himself that they were right. But that is part, exactly what you say, if they would have put him on a different track, it might have ended very differently. It was not, I don't, I really don't believe it was uh, internal hatred. And quite a lot of scholars say, well, he didn't show that in the beginning of his career or before the Nazi rose mm. to power. So he was also mm. an opportunist, someone making a career. Um, yeah. And I think he would have made himself a career anyway, but he 
was in the Nazi regime and that determined where he went. Yeah. I mean, that that option that Eichmann is an ordinary person with a, a huge motor and he happened to be on the Nazi track and that's, you know, that's why he ended up like he did. That that option is to me a million times scarier than uh, he was innately evil. Like I'd rather hear it makes me feel better about myself if there's something wrong with Eichmann, if there's something just like deranged about him, because now I'm questioning like, well, what if I'm just on this, you know, podcasting media track? But if I was born at a different time or, you know, if I just happened to stumble upon something else, I would just be working just as hard as I am in that. But for, you know, an extremely immoral cause. Yeah. No, but that is absolutely the most scary thing about doing this research. Um, I also feel I'm, I'm also doing research on myself. It could be me. It could be the people I love. It could be my friends. It uh, could be my colleagues. And that is scary. And you do see that quite a lot uh, among scholars uh, that who recognize that. And one of the most uh, striking examples was one of the um, Secret Service agents from Israel who abducted Eichmann. And when they abducted him, they had to stay in a, a safe house for a few days before they could put him on the plane to Israel. And mm. they weren't allowed to talk to him. But he was so intrigued that he wanted to talk to him because he wanted to understand him. So we started small conversations. And at some point he realized like, wow, this this man is actually not inherently evil. He did evil things. He did very bad things. But he is so similar to me in many ways. And... I found that also quite sad to read because that was, of course, uh, a son or I can't remember if he himself had survived the Holocaust or whether his family had, but definitely, of course, from a uh, group of people that survived and then realizing you're not much different from the perpetrators. And he said that mm. was a very scary mirror that he, uh, yeah. he he actually was to me. Yeah. So I want to I want to get into the so, the sort of uh, for and against the the thesis that Eichmann is an ordinary person. And I know there's a there's a ton of evidence and citations laid out in the book. So I'm, I'm not really sure where the ideal places to start. So I'll, I'll just tee it up. Like, wh what is the evidence that you've come across that supports Eichmann and other figures like him that, uh, you know, they're just ordinary guys that got put on and, you know, an, an immoral track versus there is something deranged about them. What, what's the evidence that supports that? The way you phrase it, it's very hard to say what is exactly the evidence, because ultimately, um, you cannot look in, inside the head of him. So ultimately, it's always on the basis of his behavior, what he's saying, what he's doing, that you say, well, I do believe that are his main motives or that supports his main motives. What to me is decisive is that I started to understand how people transform from being ordinary people to perpetrators. And the crucial moment in, the tran in this transformation is um, 
after the first time you get to involve in really crimes and then you start to rationalize and justify what you're doing. And in Eichmann's story, I started to see that very strongly, that he started to to change, that he started to mm-hmm. rationalize and justify what he was doing. And to give an example of the counter evidence that some people say, well, there he made his anti-Semitic remark or there he uh, seemed to enjoy this. Then I feel if I look at the whole story that I say, well, he maybe made that anti-Semitic remark because he was with others who were very anti-Semitic. And he was also the guy Mm. who wanted to fit in. And the fact that he is quite obsessive in fulfilling the duty, a lot of people say, well, that shows his uh, hatred for the Jews. But Mm. in the other explanation where you see it as a transformation and as him being obsessed, not with killing the Jews per se, but with fulfilling his task, which was killing the Jews, but Mm. the focus is on task here, um, then that behavior makes sense. And there's another explanation. So what I do think... um, or what I'm trying to say is that you're, you cannot really say this is 100% hardcore evidence versus uh, yeah. no evidence. It's more how you understand certain behavior. And mm. in this explanation I laid out, I feel that that is a very convincing way of seeing him. Although I also acknowledge, and I do so in the book, that I said, well, look, maybe some new information comes out and then suddenly I cannot explain it that way anymore. But we have to infer motivations from behavior and circumstances. Yeah. Are, are, there, are there any reliable studies that essentially put types of perpetrators in CAT scans and try to see how their, their brain lights up compared to an or, you know, like a quote unquote ordinary person or are there, is there not anything like that that's reliable where you can get like hard data on how their brains operate? It is, of course, not possible to do so in uh, or to ethically do so in a situation where they actually committed human rights violations or mass atrocities. Mm-hmm. However, there is one research um, where they look at the effect on the brain when people start to uh, obey certain more immoral orders. And mm. uh, now you caught me a bit off guard with this question. So I'm, I'm not 100% sure if I say it correctly, but you do see certain uh, changes in the brain, which um, I, I can remember the conclusion is that people feel it easier to then follow and to leave the responsibility with the mm. one giving the commands rather than uh, keeping your own responsibility, which would cause much more stress. Yeah, um, it it sounds like it, is that the the Stanford shock experiment where the, there was a lab, uh, like the the a lab tech was giving commands to people to shock an actor, and yeah. they would just keep raising and raising the voltage. Yes, that's the Milgram experiment. The Stanford Milgram is related. Yeah. That's the Stanford prison experiment. That's a different one. Yeah. 
but uh, the Stanley Milgram obedience to authority experiment. That was not the experiment I meant. However, that's a very significant one as well. And there you see, basically, you see the, the footage of people who were indeed asked to give uh, progressive, uh, progressively stronger shocks to a, a so-called learner. They, they were led to the lab believing that it was a learning experiment. In reality, it was to see how far they would go with giving electric shocks. Um, mm. And the real subject of the experiment was always the teacher, the one reading out word pairs. Then there was a learner who had memorized them. And with every mistake, he got a shock. And it started off with 15 volt and went up. I have to immediately say, in reality, the shocks were not really given, but the subjects did believe that they were real. And then the actor acted as if he got really shock, real shocks. Now, what you see from that experiment, um, before the experiment, they believed that only one or two people would go all the way up to 450 volts. Actually, Stanley Milgram was uh, motivated to do this research by seeing Adolf Eichmann stand trial in Jerusalem and saying, oh, I just followed orders. The only thing I did was following orders. And he wanted to yeah. prove that people don't just do these kind of things by following orders. So that's why he did the experiment, but he proved the exact opposite because 65% of the people went all the way up to 450. Now, what is interesting- 65% is nuts. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Scary. Yeah, some of the people say, well, 35% didn't. No, indeed, they didn't go up and they had the the courage to at some point say no, but that they still went quite a way up. so yeah. it's not that they refused right from the start. But what you see in that documentary, there's a, a footage of it, fairly famous, and one of the subjects is filmed for almost 15 minutes. And the first time I saw that footage, you almost start to shout at this subject in uh, the documentary because you can totally see that he feels absolutely uncomfortable with what he was doing. And he wanted yeah. to stop. And he several times said, shouldn't we stop? And isn't this, this dangerous? And uh, But yet the experimenter then said, no, you have to continue. And it's important that you continue. And then he went all the way up. So that is the Milgram experiment proving actually how strongly we want to obey. Um, but back then we didn't have, I don't think, or at least there was no research done with brain scans. That was done much later with a mm. fairly similar um, experiment where at least people had to follow orders and then they tested the the brains. Yeah. So you'd mentioned that you'd sat down with one of the perpetrators from the, was it the Rwandan genocide? Yes. How, how, many, how many of the perpetrators uh, that would fit the, the typologies in the book, how, how many of these people have you sat down with? Um, in Rwanda, I interviewed... Uh, 24 perpetrators and Damn. at some point I went to South Africa and hoped to interview perpetrators as well there but that unfortunately didn't work out but in Rwanda I talked to 24 of them in one night or no, did you no, in no, Rwanda no. in Rwanda oh, okay. I was going to say it's a, it's, a, it's a long ass night um, how, how does it feel to sit face to face and speak with some of those perpetrators are there any in particular that stand out to you well I found it interesting. Um, I must admit, because I had read a lot about perpetrators before, 
And I must admit, they didn't tell me anything that was entirely new to me. But the fact that you sit face to face with people who had actually done these kind of things makes it different because you see um, how they look, you see how they behave, you see how they tell their story. And the most of what I got from, from those interviews is, yet again, what how ordinary they were and how they were not much different from any other people I knew. Just they felt slightly miserable, understandingly, uh, so because they were in prison and the Rwandan prisons were quite full back then. So yeah. that wasn't a, a situation to be very happy about. And they also felt a bit uncomfortable about what they had done. Um, I tackled the interviews not asking them directly, like, what did you do? How many people did you kill? Because I was a mm. bit afraid that I wouldn't get uh, clear answers. But then I told them, I want to you to describe the dynamics in the groups. What happened? And then they described what happened back then within the group, which included them. And I tried to avoid saying when they said, yeah, and then someone was killed and it could, uh, most likely they were involved, but that way yeah. I could prevent them from saying I did it and, and feeling that I was judging them. So Yeah. Yeah. There's something about if you ask someone a question where it's like, did you do this? Even if it's a subtle thing, it, it feels accusatory. But if you ask it indirectly, I feel like people will just in a roundabout way start to to give you more information, which is like what it sounds like happened with the, the perpetrators. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure some of the stories they said uh, of what they saw, that they themselves did that in, in some cases. Some cases they might have just seen it. In other cases, they might have, have done it themselves. And is Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, no, that doesn't matter. The one thing I wanted to say, what what also struck me is that they, almost all of them said, yes, but you cannot understand because it was a very different time than back then. And I found that striking that almost all of them started off with saying that, really meaning that, yeah, you come here to talk to me because I was involved in the genocide, but I'm not a danger to anyone right now. And mm. they didn't say it that way, but I felt that was the message they were giving me. And I must also say, I didn't feel threatened by any one of them or felt like, oh, this is a bit dangerous. They're very violent men because... I did understand that they committed their crimes in a very different context. Yeah. Did you feel a through line of emotion from them, like shame or ego or brag, like anything like that, that sort of connected their accounts or, or was it all different types of emotions from them? Different kind of emotions. Some try to more repress them and keep it factual or very clearly not showing emotions. But there was one, the only women, uh, woman we interviewed, she was very emotional. And she... Uh, she was also the one, only one who publicly, clearly to us said that she killed a number of people. And wow. But 
she was there. She uh, got dragged into it somehow. I cannot remember the exact details now anymore, but somehow it was the story that she was dragged into it, uh, joined the violence that they killed or was involved in the killing of a few few people, physically involved. But then she felt so bad about it that she um, left the group again. She Because in Rwanda... Um, there were a lot of these killer groups who together in, in groups of between 10 and 100 people started to kill the Tutsis. And mm. she participated in one of those groups and then was involved, but then she felt so bad about it that she got out of the group and no longer participated, um, at least according to her story. But then what she felt is that she was no longer accepted by the killers because they felt she betrayed them by leaving the group. But she was also no longer yeah. accepted by her family because she had joined a group. Uh, she was mm. not accepted by the Tutsis. They were the victims. She was a perpetrator, but also not by the perpetrators but because they, she left them. And I must say that made me also feel a bit sad that... Of course, she did a horrible thing, but at least she had the guts at some point to step away. But she wasn't helped in any way like, okay, you did a bad thing, but now you took the right decision. And she was yeah. rejected by everyone. And she said, well, and that was the moment when we could see in the courtyard that a lot of these prisoners got some family members who visited them. And she said, no one is coming to visit me. And I found that a bit bit sad. And she yeah. showed real, true emotion. Was that because she was mm. the only woman we interviewed? I don't know. Um, but the others, um, they showed emotions, but not like she was crying, actually. And um, going through a tough time, so bad that I I, I felt like, like consoling her and, and saying something to comfort her. Uh, just yeah. out of a general empathy. And I didn't have that with any of the others uh, in that strong sense. But you could see that they suppress strong emotions. Yeah, there, there's something about emotions combined with authenticity that creates such a, a stronger connection. And I, I've, I've never spoken to anyone that would, uh, you know, fit in that sort of, caricature as a or not caricature but just like the category of a rwandan uh genocide perpetrator but I've, I've i've listened to podcasts and i've spoken to people on the podcast that um have had similar experiences where they've had to interact with people who are perceived as evil for their work and the authenticity and just like someone being honest can almost sort of make you forget about what they've done for a second, as opposed to a perpetrator that's just like ego driven or, you know, they're not really being honest about what they did. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is this uh, famous uh, part of a story by Pumla Godoba. She was a black South African who lived through the apartheid regime. And she interviewed Eugène de Kock, who is also described in my book. And he was the leader of one of the uh, death squads in uh, apartheid uh, or South Africa under the apartheid regime. And Eugène de Kock played uh, an important role in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That was the commission after uh, the fall of the apartheid regime, 
where they said, we want all the truth to come out and all the perpetrators who come forward and tell us the whole truth, they get amnesty and the others mm. will be prosecuted. Now, Jeanne de Kock said, okay, I'll come forward, but on the very last day and then tell everything, name everyone who was involved. Um, that triggered a lot of people to come forward. So by doing that, he, he actually played a, a, a positive role in the TRC in South Africa by um, giving the incentive to a lot of people to come forward. So he was an important figure there. And Pumla Godaba, who was also a scholar, a psychologist, um, wanted to interview him. And she interviewed him on yeah, his lives, his motives, so went to prison and talked to him several times. And during those interviews, one of the interviews, he tell, told his story. And, and as I said, he's also in my book. So he had a, a pretty, he had a, let's say, normal upbringing, uh, normal for South Africa at the time. But then he went to war and he saw a lot of horrible things going on in the war. Then he joined the anti-terrorism unit, saw a lot of violence there and ultimately became the leader of the death squad. So he was himself involved in a lot of murders and everything. But he was also, like Eichmann, a very typical devoted warrior. He really believed that what he was doing was the right thing, and he got a task and wanted to do it as well as he could. So he told her a story. And at some point, she did feel a bit sorry for him, didn't want to excuse his crimes, but felt sorry uh, for him, felt mm. empathy. And then she, out of a spontaneous, um, how do you say, uh, urge of empathy, she briefly puts her hand on his hand to console him. Uh, mm. Only very brief gesture, just a, a friendly gesture. But that gesture uh, struck herself. And then she describes in the book in a very powerful way, not necessarily what that did to her, but then she said... I got into my car and my trip home lasted uh, 10 minutes less than it used to do, which mm. must show that she must have pushed the gas really hard yeah. to, to get away, literally out of the situation. And, yeah. um, or is she like trying to run away from herself in a way where she's like appalled at yeah. how she could connect to someone like that? Exactly. And, and the story even continues because then... Um, I don't know if it was weeks, months, or even a year later, she encountered him again. And then he said, um, you know, you touched my trigger hand. And that totally freaked okay. her out again. But then she was like, whoa, uh, did he do it deliberately? Did I fall for it? Or, or did he just notice that moment, uh, the, 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 the power of her empathy? And... I found it such a, a fascinating story. And actually, uh, in, in the, at least in the UK, I do know, in London, there was a play made out of this situation to this, this very difficult situation where you as a scholar just try to be open and understand, but yeah. then also feel at some point a very human empathy. But then are shocked at the same time by your own empathy because yeah. that person did horrible things. Yeah. No, it's, I guess that would make you question the, uh, like the reliability of empathy as a, like, 
you sort of think like people you can feel empathy for those are people that you can safely let into your life but if you have the power to feel empathy for someone who committed such horrible atrocities that would that makes me question like how you know can i trust my own empathy i, I and i imagine she was dealing with certain you know back and forth mental struggles from that that experience going forward yeah absolutely but I, I do have to say that Eugène de Kock is also known, and several other scholars said that, that once the apartheid regime ended, he he realized what had gone on. And he felt very much betrayed by the people in the government of South Africa at the time, because he said, we got those orders, and you should admit that you gave us the orders. But what the people in the government did is blame him for what he did, mm. whereas he said, well, no, I followed your orders, and that was what I believed in. And now I realize it was wrong, but he felt also a situation where it was very unfair, and he really realized that it was wrong, a lot of these policies, and he did show, and several other scholars confirmed that, um genuine remorse about what he did and there were families where he talked to the families of the people he killed who did feel like he has shows general remorse and he is sorry about what he did yeah so it also shows the complexity of perpetrators perpetrators are and then we come back to to the subtitle of my book um that they're not people who were born evil and are in everything what they do evil. They committed some horrendous crimes, maybe you could say evil crimes, but as people, they're not necessarily evil. And then in another situation, they can show remorse and regrets and uh, warm feelings. And Eugène de Kock, also by other biographers, is described as a true gentleman. Um mm. Yeah, and if he then tells it, his story, yeah, that, that's yeah. I, I'm trying to like like logically hearing all of the different, uh, just like people like that who it's it's not just uh, biology, but it's also situation timing. It seems like there's a ton of factors in play that are outside of their control if you're really thinking about it, when someone becomes a perpetrator, like things that they didn't necessarily ask to be born with or asked to be born into, that begs the question, do they deserve punishment? And while while I was going through the book, I was thinking about that a lot, like how like they should 100% be separated from society because they're a danger to society. But should they be like... Punished, like tortured, like, you know, should their lives be miserable from the time that they're separated from society? And if you asked me like six months ago, I'd say like, yeah, you know, torture the shit out of anyone who fits any of these profiles. And now it's making me question, like, how much punishment do they actually deserve? Well, let me say, I don't agree with you that they're dangerous, um, at okay. least not after a period of war ends or a uh, violent regime they are part of, like the apartheid regime, most of them will not be dangerous anymore. Some of them, yes. And that's also why in the book I distinguish between several types. So there are some types like, for instance, the, the predator, 
who uh, or, and the deranged who have a more natural inclination to violence. These perpetrators would also commit violence outside that specific context. They are dangerous. They are very dangerous in a period of war and they are dangerous in a period after. Some of the perpetrators are ordinary people before the war. During the war, they commit horrendous crimes and sometimes they got uh, traumatized by it, can trigger them, um, make them more aggressive, more violent. And yes, some of them then are violent after the war, after the regime. But most of them are not. And so I absolutely disagree with you saying they should be separated from society because they're dangerous, because they, they are not. Once the regime is over, then the context in which they committed these crimes no longer exists. It's a whole different context. And it's very unlikely that they would do anything similar to what they've did before. Um, mm. So... No, I don't think there are uh, the majority then. Eh? There's a minority, yes, um, the, the predators, the sadists, the deranged, the uh, very narcissistic people. What you do see is that, of course, um, we all have a, a tremendous threshold before we commit crimes. Uh, we are all raised, or most of them, luck- of us, luckily, to not hurt another person. Now, once you start to do that in a period of war, the threshold is lower to do it again. That is true. Mm. But for most perpetrators, the context is defining. So they're no longer dangerous once they're out of the context. Who would be an example of someone in the book that you would be okay with rejoining society after you know a, a war or a genocide passed where, where the context is no longer present yeah that's a that's another question <laughs> a different question you you'd be okay with um or not be okay uh should i guess you said uh i guess it's a question of like should they versus are you okay with so i i like morally uh uh, passable to rejoin society? I don't know if that's like a, a better I, way to phrase it. I think a lot of them are very capable to just rejoin society and, and capable, yeah. Yeah, capable and function in a normal way. Because as I said, most of them are not dangerous. Another question is whether they deserve punishment for what they did. That is another thing. Despite the fact that um, maybe a lot of people or all the people in the same situation would have done the same, you could then question, do they deserve punishment or not? On the other hand, if you look at the victims who suffered, suffered, then you would say, well, actually, um, yeah, they deserve some kind of punishment or should do something to make up for what they did, not because others wouldn't do it, but because they did it. Um, mm. Arendt, actually, Hannah Arendt ended her book about Eichmann, uh, Adolf Eichmann, also with saying, like, despite the fact that he's very ordinary and normal, and maybe other people would do the same, he still should hang because of what he did. Um, mm. Not because he's still a danger, because... Eichmann would be a perfect example of someone. He was so law-abiding 
But in Nazi Germany, law-abiding and following the authorities meant being involved in the genocide, taking his position and role. Being in a different regime, I don't think that Eichmann would be a danger at all. Um, Hmm. So you don't need to lock him up because he's a danger, but you might, or might, I think you should lock him up because of what he did. Um, To say, well, you did something that is really bad, and therefore you need to get punished. And that would make punishments okay. Yet another yeah. question, but then we get in something very different, is is punishments the best way to solve these kind of situations? Um, that's something else. But I just want to distinguish the dangerousness and whether you deserve being punished for what you did. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great question that I'm nowhere near smart enough to answer it's like it should punishment be equal should punishment be on a graded scale of suffering or should it be more tied to moral culpability should it be a combination of both suffering you've caused versus you know taking into account biological factors environmental factors i i I, there's so many moving parts i wouldn't even know how to begin yeah it's it will be impossible to make it more or less equal to what you've done we have human rights and i also firmly believe in the importance of the normative value of human rights so if someone tortured other people we shouldn't get back to him by torturing that person that's illegal mm. in the law what you can do is say okay you tortured people that's not allowed so we put you in prison for a while um is that the same? Well, for no one, it's nice being in a prison, but it's not as bad as being in prison and being tortured. So mm. I don't think we should try and aim at uh, leveling the suffering you caused with what you did. I do believe the function of punishment is more to saying, uh, look, what you did is wrong and you have to uh, some kind of retribution, which... Um, is totally out of balance with what you did, but we do need this to reinstate the law, to confirm uh, what the law is, what is right, what is wrong. And for the victims, it's very important to have the acknowledgement of what happened to them that that is wrong, and for the perpetrator to be punished. For not all uh, victims, but most victims, it is important that they do see that person being punished. And that also might take away their uh, feelings of vengeance, of wanting to take revenge. Yeah. So when when it comes to the type of perpetrators who you think wouldn't be capable of rejoining society, what types would that be? That would people be who are uh, deranged. Um, So the ones who are driven to these kind of crimes out of uh, mental disturbances, deficiencies, because in those cases, the circumstances made them choose a particular path or what they did. But even without the circumstances, they would have done horrible things. An example uh, would be uh, Bulel. That is the guy who was responsible for uh, the attack in Nice uh, in France. Um, I now 
can't remember the exact year, but it was on the 14th of July, which is the national day in France. And in Nice, mm. he took uh, this truck and the people who had just enjoyed fireworks were all on uh, this big road alongside the sea. And he drove with his truck, killing over 80, 90, uh, I think 89 uh, people. Wow. Now, Boulel did that uh, with the help of the Islamic State. And you could then link that to the Islamic State. But if you look in his history, you see that this man was a very violent, very disturbed man with a very long track record of uh, or criminal record, uh, committed many crimes, uh, was, um, I think his, his parents uh, wanted him out of the house when he was fairly young because he was untreatable. And uh, so this is a man who is clearly disturbed. And mm -hmm. it's actually the Islamic State that somehow managed to get in touch with him, gave him the money, the opportunity, the motivation to commit that specific attack. So the circumstances made him hiring this truck, or the truck was hired for him, I don't know the details, but, and then he committed this, this horrendous uh, crime um, in France. So the circumstances determined that, but if that wouldn't have been the case, he had committed so many crimes before, I'm very sure he would have committed other murders, maybe not 89 with a truck, but then he would probably have killed uh, other people in other way, other horrendous ways. So mm. that is a man who was clearly disturbed and mm. who should be in prison to protect society because he is a danger to society. So is there more of a, a biological and an ingrained psychological component to the, the people that wouldn't have the capacity to rejoin the society versus like situational? Yes, I definitely think that, uh, or, or actually there are also uh, quite quite a few uh, theories who show that certain mental deficiencies make that people have uh, are more aggressive, more violent, um, psychopaths, they don't have a conscience, they uh, don't have empathy. So they're always out for their own interest, their own well-being, never out uh, to, to care for others because they simply don't feel for others they don't see what mm. they do and what that means to others they don't feel they're they're hurt so some of those people because for a very long time we associated psychopath with serial killers because many mm. serial killers if not all are psychopath they lack the conscience they lack empathy for other people and that's um and they're out for their own interests, so that makes them uh, kill others because they just don't see that it's wrong or don't care that it's wrong. The reverse is not true. You also see psychopaths who have been well-trained, well-raised, and who um, find a way to function in society without committing crime. Now. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a very interesting book by James Fallon, who was a, a psychiatrist, um, and he was studying brains. And at some point, a colleague asked him to look at the number of brains of, of psychopaths. So he looked at those brain scans, made scans of them uh, together with a sample he had himself. 
and he saw a clear difference in the brain structure of the psychopath and his own sample. With one exception, there was one person in his sample that matched a similar brain as a psychopath. And then it turned out to be his brain scan, his own brain scan. Yeah. And he looked at that and was totally um, flabbergasted by that. And he started to, to research this a bit and say, well, hey, this is weird because these are all convicted criminals, convicted murderers. I happen to have the same brain, but I'm not a murderer. I didn't do anything criminal so far. So that research is very interesting because he then sees and realizes that he has the same mental deficiencies and shortcomings as many of the psychopaths, but he was raised in different circumstances. He then started, and he wrote a little book about it, uh, Inside uh, the Mind of a Psychopath, which is a mm-hmm. small booklet, but very insightful. And he started to interview his, his friends, his wife, his children, his parents. And only then he realized that everyone knew that he was different to other people Mm -hmm. and they still liked him because in many ways he was a likable guy but he was also the type of guy uh, when he would be at uh, his his best friend's wedding and he would be even if he would be the best man if the party next door would be better he would go next door to the other party because he's only out for his own interest and people around him knew that and then he realized I never knew that because he lacked this empathy. But then he also knew that his mother had raised him to nevertheless um, stay within the limits of the law and to not do certain things. So what I'm trying Mm. to say is that there are mental deficiencies that can make you more prone to commit crimes, but the way you're raised, these kind of circumstances do play a role. So it's not by definition, if you have these deficiencies, that you are a danger. But if you have these deficiencies and you were raised in a harsh way or start to commit crimes, yes, then you are a danger. and Then you should be locked up. I I actually spoke with James Fallon about a year ago, and I I think the term that he used was pro-social psychopath, that he wasn't really a danger to other people, but he was like, I came into the conversation and of course I had all these preconceived notions from, you know, books and movies about what you said, associating a psychopath with a serial killer. And then I started to go through his book and, you know, shed some of those preconceptions and then talking to him where he's just being very open and honest about, you know, what it would be like to be friends with him or what his wife says it's like to be married to him where he's like, yeah, like I'll, I'll probably, if we were friends, I would start to manipulate you a little bit and push you towards like what I considered my, you know, the best option for me. There, there, it's not, you know, the typical. Uh, there wouldn't be the typical markers of uh, a romantic or a, a friendship in terms of like being a wife or being a friend. There, it would feel very different. And I was like, wow, that's a very the fact that you're just telling me that and you've written this book about it same thing like it made me feel more trust for him which you know it may be (laughs) is self-serving also for him that people can trust him more so there were a couple moments during the podcast where i'm like is he bullshitting me right now or is he actually uh you know being being real with me but i think that was just my own story in my head conflicting with what 
he was saying rather than what he was actually saying. Wow, that's fascinating. I, did, I didn't realize you talked to him because I looked through the, the other podcast and didn't overlook this. But I was also fascinated by his book and his honesty and yeah. how open he is about that. But for that very same reason, it's very insightful. Yeah. Uh, and he also ends his so, book, maybe he said that in the podcast too, and he ends something like with a sentence, and you know what? I don't care. And that was also very yeah. honest. <laughs> yeah, ex- extremely honest. So I, I want to get into the the criminal mastermind because you have, for people who uh, haven't checked out the book, th- there are 14 types of perpetrators and you've said that the criminal mastermind is the you know the first and foremost one to study they're the ones that stand above all the other perpetrators what makes the criminal mastermind be in that that top position the criminal mastermind is defined actually that way already the one at the top of the chain of command of a uh, violent genocidal regime or uh, the instigator of a certain uh, policy um that leads to mass atrocities. So it's by definition um, the one at the top of the chain of command. There's no one above that person. So that is why I qualified that perpetrator as the criminal mastermind. Um, What sets them apart, very importantly, is precisely that they are at the top of this hierarchy, meaning that they don't take orders from anyone, but they are the ones giving orders. They are the ones deciding on the policy. Now, of course, a criminal mastermind cannot uh, work all by himself. Uh, If there would be only Hitler, uh, Adolf Hitler, without any followers, he couldn't have done what he did. So a criminal mastermind, and Adolf Hitler is one of them, a criminal mastermind does need followers. However, in that position, he is still the clear leader, like Adolf Hitler was in in Nazi Germany. And all others commit what I call so-called crimes of obedience, meaning that they do things that are in line with what the people in power say, suggest, want them to do. Mm. The criminal masterminds, they are the ones giving those orders or setting that uh, idea, um, making people believe like this is what you need to do. And what I found very powerful in the book by Ian Kershaw, who who wrote a lot about um, Hitler and Stalin, Nazi Germany, uh, and also the leaders, was that he said in Nazi Germany, a lot of people worked towards the Führer, meaning Mm. that they didn't even necessarily need a direct order, but they started to do what they thought Adolf Hitler wanted them to do. And sometimes mm. that So that he wouldn't already, even have to give the orders. I was, I was gonna say he wouldn't nope. even have to give the orders a lot of times. They would just like go out of their way to please him. Yes, exactly. And that is when mm. you're so powerful and so clearly set what the general dry direction is that people are attracted to you, uh, feel that you're very charismatic, believe in you, put their hope in you, see you as a savior then you don't have to give the direct directions. And Hitler didn't give, give, he wrote in Mein Kampf about what he wanted to do. So it was if people who had read Mein Kampf do see that he wanted to commit genocide, 
But there are not really moments where he gave those direct orders, yet everyone knew that that was the direction they were taking. So the people who followed him um, did that. They might have discussed it with him, and he might have given those orders and directions there. But what is striking uh, is that the most important moment was the Wannsee conference in Nazi Germany, where it was decided how the genocide would be organized, but Hitler wasn't there. So the criminal masterminds, Mm. and that makes them stand apart and why I call them the first and foremost perpetrators, is they shape the context. They shape the atrocity-producing situation. And of course, it's a dynamic with all the other perpetrators, but being at the top of the chain of command makes that you have the most important vote, that you have the most important vibe of what everyone else is doing. And that is Mm -hmm. why they stand apart. So people like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Milosevic, they all fit into that type. So you're, yeah, you're setting the tone, you're setting the vibe, like you said, for the atrocities, but by design, you're separate from the actions themselves. There's like a, there's a disconnect between the actual atrocities and, and the, the criminal mastermind. Yes, there are a few exceptions of um, criminal masterminds who were themselves involved in uh, certain uh, atrocities, but most of them, they're not. They are the ones instigating, inciting others, ordering, developing the policies, Mm -hmm. getting the general ideas. And that also makes... uh, before we talked about uh, punishing perpetrators, but when you prosecute them, that makes it also more difficult because the criminal masterminds is at the top of the chain of command and the hierarchy. And it's sometimes much harder to link that person to the crimes committed on the ground. uh, Whereas for the low ranking perpetrators who actually physically commit the crimes, it's much easier to prove what their role was. Whereas for those yeah. at the top, it's sometimes they're openly instigating, but if they don't do that, it's much harder. Yeah, it, it sounds similar to how the, the drug cartels operate. And I wonder if they took anything from the Nazis <laughs> because the drug cartels, like you, you never find any drugs on the, the higher up bosses. They're, you know, they're not the ones that are beheading people. They're not the ones that are trafficking across the border. It's always like their house gets raided and there's... You know, it's just like them and their family, and there's no evidence of any wrongdoing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a specialist on those drug cartels, but there are clear similar, uh, similarities, yes. So I, I would guess that a criminal mastermind wouldn't be capable of rejoining society because of how powerful they can become, just getting back towards the top, or would they... Is there some way in which they could actually, like, you know, it's tough to say, but could a Hitler operate in society after, you know, of course, there's the moral implications from other people in society, but would he be a danger to society technically after the Holocaust? It depends very much. There are certain criminal masterminds, and the one I'm thinking of is is Pol Pot. Uh, He was the leader of Cambodia 
during the period of, of mass violence, the Khmer Rouge regime in 1975-1979. And then he escaped the country when uh, the regime fell. So he lived for quite a long time in hiding and uh, away from the world and a fairly modest life. So I do think that is in certain circumstances possible, but he was in hiding. Um, When they are not punished and can openly live in a certain situation... I guess that many of them would try to get back in power and that would immediately make them dangerous. It is the attraction of power having been in such a powerful situation and especially, I'm not talking about just any political leader, I'm talking about the ones that instigate and incite violence. And those leaders very often, um, or a number of them are very charismatic, like Adolf Hitler. And Adolf Hitler would be a type would be very difficult to perceive him living an ordinary life because he might still have quite a lot of, of supporters. Um, mm. On the other hand, you maybe maybe the circumstances might have changed. Uh, that can also be true, but I think it's it's difficult because they would like to go back into power probably, and people, many of the former followers might still admire him. So I think. I, I do believe the um, criminal masterminds are a separate group and also maybe should put away in, uh, in prison for definitely a very long time. Not necessarily yeah. life, but a very long time until the circumstances really changed. Because Hitler could also arise only in power because there was a fertile breeding ground. And as soon as mm. the fertile breeding ground is gone, then it's much more difficult for him to rise to power. Could you could you argue that there's always a fertile breeding ground to rise to power, but the context and the way that you approach that breeding ground changes throughout time? So, of course, today, if, if Hitler tried to spread his ideologies because of the current culture, he would immediately get outcasted as a racist, uh, you know, homophobe. Just immediate red flags. But today, if a clone of Hitler was born and came into society, he might try to be more subtle at first, kind of like dog whistling around the edges as he sort of makes his way into the the head of government. Yes. What what you see, you, you said there's always a fertile breeding ground. I don't think there always is. There... Um, because it has been investigated in studies, research has shown that for these violent and genocidal criminal masterminds to rise to power, there should be difficult life conditions. Otherwise, mm. if all people are living in relative wealth, uh, democracy, human rights, no real inequality in society, there wouldn't be no reason to become violent. Mm-hmm. The point is that Um, Once there are difficult life conditions, and these can be real uh, difficult life conditions or relative difficult life conditions. And what I mean by relative difficult life conditions is when you see that certain groups in society are very wealthy and other groups are very poor, then you get um, this this sense of relative deprivation where you say, hey, this is Mm -hmm. unfair. Why do they have so much more than I do? 
So that can trigger difficult life conditions and that you do need for extremists to rise to power. Mm. But once you get that, what you see actually in uh, many parts of the world, that more extremist leaders do rise to power, but in a very gradual way, and they become more extreme along the way. Um, a very powerful concept was developed by, by Irvin Staub, which, he's called, which he called the continuum of destructiveness. And meaning, mm. and that's applicable to both perpetrators, bystanders, but also society in general, saying that at some point you you go into a certain path and then your decisions and your behavior make continuing that path more likely. So mm. if you set out on a path to discriminate, hurt, torture, and kill people, the psychological changes that you go through when doing that make that you continue doing that more uh, more likely. So mm-hmm. it is true that you can gradually get more and more extreme. And that could be a situation where there are difficult life conditions. You start off with a more extremist ideology, you become more extreme along the way and that is absolute a danger if you look at adolf hitler he rose to power in 1933 he didn't start the genocide in 1933 that really started the wannsee conferences were 1942 so nine years later he had already written in mein kampf what his plans were but he didn't immediately start off with with killing that started mm. gradually in 38 39 uh, but also on a small scale and then ended up becoming more extreme. So you do see these two situations. Mm. It, so if there was a if there was a test today that could accurately tell you if someone would become one of the types of perpetrators that couldn't rejoin society, uh, like a lot of the criminal masterminds or the deranged people, and it could, you know, identify them from birth and they would be carefully watched and, you know, even separated before things could happen. Would you be for some sort of biological indicator like that? No, because everyone has his, her uh, human rights and you cannot always get all the uh, biological factors uh, straight. Uh, we talked about James Fallon, who mm-hmm. has um, brain um, scan or a similar brain, a psychopath, yeah, but who who isn't a, a serial killer because he has been raised well. So he might have been detected by this biological determinism and then put in prison or put away that would have been totally unfair because now he is a a well-known psychiatrist who is not violating the law maybe he sometimes do things that other people don't like or where you would say hey that is not what friends would do but other people do that as well sometimes he's not violating the law and that is crucial so there's a big danger in doing that um what I do believe, if someone really committed crimes or shows um, trouble, disturbed behavior, like a person 
as uh, Boulel, the, the one responsible for the attack at Nice, then you could say we should have a better medical system, a social system to help him, support him, prevent him from uh, going further on that path. And then you could say we can try to teach him to behave in a different way or if he really stays a danger to then, if he committed crimes, uh, put him away, try to learn him how to, to behave in a different way. But to use biological determinism is is very dangerous. And you mentioned the criminal masterminds as well. Well, there are many criminal masterminds if the circumstances hadn't been uh, a very fertile ground for them to rise to power, they might have been very ordinary people um, who would Who comes never... to mind that might fit that profile, that, that someone that would be ordinary if the context was different? That, that's also a criminal mastermind. Um, definitely Pol Pot is the first that comes Pot, to mind. Okay. He, he was a teacher. And sometimes he got more extremist ideas, but he could have been a teacher and living all his life as a teacher. Adolf Hitler is actually another example because he was he wanted to become a, um, a, a painter, an artist, yeah, artist, an artist, yeah. and he was in fact a failed artist. Now, if he somehow didn't get um, into the roles he eventually slipped in, he might have stayed a nobody that no one knew. But the circumstances, choices, situations made him rise to power. But there might have been many more people like him who never rose to a position of power because the the breeding ground wasn't fertile, if I can say that like this. Yeah. Uh, so psychologically, is there a through line to criminal masterminds where they're all, you know, psychopaths or sadists, uh, narcissists, or is it always a, a different combination? There are differences. Most of them, however, have certain psychopathic traits, and many of them are narcissists. And narcissists are people who um, fall in love with a kind of inflated image of themselves, believing themselves to be superior to other people and to believe themselves to be more just and be more right. So narcissism is a very strong indicator. Then getting into a position of power also changes the way you view the world. If you don't, most people uh, don't have much power. And not having much power can be very frustrating because you have to follow, you have to do what others do, you're dependent on others. And what research also to, uh, shows that once you have power, you you are a control and there's no one controlling you. And most certainly if you come in a position as being head of state, then who controls you? And yeah. a lot of these criminal masterminds do have this this narcissism, but it's also, how do I say, further extended or, or become stronger, much stronger once they are in a position of power. Then mm. they even more believe in uh, these inflated images of themselves. 
Yeah, I, I wonder if there's a level of power where once you get high enough that no human being, no matter how disciplined or how how self-aware they are, can properly deal with being in that position of power. Like, I'm, tr- I'm just trying to imagine, you know, going from just a being a, being a podcaster, just some a normal dude living in New York to then becoming the president of the United States. Like, do I have the capabilities to treat people fairly in that position of power? Or is the thing that's keeping me, you know, mostly decent person most of the time, the fact that I just don't have that power on a daily basis? It's, it's, it, it just makes me think about the, the give and take. Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely a test of character being in a position of power. Yeah. Because it's so tempting to then abuse that power and do what you want because you are in control. And there's so many of these criminal masterminds who literally say and actually believe that they're above the law. So they don't have to uh, abide by the law anymore. So they change. Very often they also change the law to uh, make them, for instance, stay longer in power, um, enhance their, their, their actual power to make them even more powerful. Uh, in a democracy, we have uh, political opponents, political parties, we have elections, we have um, the three-party uh, system with the uh, executive bar- branch, the uh, judicial branch, um, and now I forgot the third one. Uh, um, leg- legislative is the last one. Yes, thanks. Um, so you have these different. That's my. Uh, that's my. Uh, I I learned that in fourth grade, and I never forgot. We had this like index card test. It was horrible, but yeah, <laughs> legislative is the last one. Yeah, thanks. I it just slipped my mind. <laughs> I was like, which one am I forgetting? But these are the ones to to control power, and in many good democracies, they do control power. And then people who get into a position uh, of power, uh, then are elected out of power at a certain moment and step down. And that's the way it should be. But it's so tempting once you're in such a situation to then change the laws, the constitution, to undermine uh, the judiciary, the legislation, uh, legislative uh, power. And that is what you see that a lot of these criminal masterminds have done. If you look at uh, Vladimir Putin right now in, in Russia, he should have been at his maximum term, but he gradually undermined the uh, system in in Russia. He The system became more and more corrupt. He killed, uh, imprisoned uh, his political opponents. Uh, Navalny, mm-hmm. uh, right now being the most illustrative example, but there are many others who were who were killed, and um, or died in very mysterious accidents. Well, there you see an example, and there are many of them who don't want to let go of power. That yeah. actually shows. Uh, yeah, I think once in a position of power shows you real character. Yeah. So go going off of the narcissism and. Get, getting into poly, politics a little bit, th- there's a lot of speculation about the psychological profiles of Donald Trump and Joe Biden leading up to the 2024 election. Donald Trump is usually characterized as the extreme narcissist. And then Joe Biden gets like the sleepy, 
senile treatment. You know, he's like not all there. He's about to fall over at any second. What What do you make about each of their psychological profiles? Just knowing what you know about perpetrators and, you know, political leaders and things like that? Yes. Well, you give a good example in the sense uh, that I, I feel it's very sad that actually the United States, uh, such a big country, brings these two people as the the two candidates. Um Biden, I never really uh, focused on his psychology, to be honest, but he, he is an old man, which brings a lot of experience. But also, yeah, isn't he too old? I see that uh, as a problem. Um, Trump is a clearer uh, danger, I feel, because of his narcissism. And he so strongly believes um in his own inflated image of himself he literally says um that he's the great he was the greatest american president ever and he believes in it and that makes it yeah. also dangerous because a lot of people he's also um well people either love him or hate him more or less but the ones who love him, to them, he's a very charismatic people. And then you see a lot of followers saying, well, he uh, he's going to make uh, the United States great again. He's the greatest president. If we follow him, he we will be the greatest American citizens ever. So they kind of yeah. try to get a bit of this, this ideal world. And the danger is that he undermines the system and polarizes society and that is already what you see he called democrat his democratic opponents vermin well that is dehumanization and that is one of the mm. most dangerous elements that you see in polarizing another society and now if we go many steps further but if you look at societies that use violence and are genocidal one of the things they do is first distinguish themselves from their victims but then um, make them into the enemy demonize them and then dehumanize them and you very clearly yeah. see that with trump and i think that is something that is really very dangerous it's a good thing to debate on political ideals and i do th yeah. see the differences between democrats and and republicans as very legitimate but starting to demonize the other one and to dehumanize them then you polarize the society and the narcissism is so extreme he cannot hear any criticism everyone who criticizes him and that's what you see with a lot of yeah. criminal masterminds as well. He, um, yeah, he ostracizes more or less. Yeah, he Trump ostracizes, and he does it in an entertaining way because he gives everyone a nickname. Like he doesn't just leave it as your vermin. He goes, he's like, I, I forget what Ted Cruz said to Trump in one of the initial debates back in 2016, but they were going back and forth, and then Trump was just like. Ted, you have a dog wife. And everyone was like, oh my God, like a presidential candidate just said someone has a dog wife or, you know, he calls Joe Biden sleepy Joe. So it's, it's like he's, th th there's like a, uh, an entertainment value to his uh, narcissism and, and uh, divisiveness that is very hard to ignore, even if you hate him. And 
I think that same thing is what attracts a lot of people to him. But 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 I'm glad you said that it makes you sad to see the options are Joe Biden and Donald Trump because everyone is always saying like all these articles being published now, especially leading up to the election, young people go out and vote. How do we get more young people to vote? And it's like the two options are a 75 year old narcissist and like an 82 year old, uh, you know, shell of himself, like a skeleton pretty much. And I'm sitting here like, give me someone that can do half of a push up. Like just give me someone that's like not falling apart and young people will come out and vote. And I know a lot of people feel that way too. They're like very, it's very uninspiring to see those options and then want to take half a day to go out and stand in line for four hours where you where you're like, I think both of these options are complete shit. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah. politically, I, I, I support uh, Biden much more uh, than Trump, obviously. But um, yeah, I do feel it's sad that these are the two options. But I, I, I do see the danger right now. Um, yeah, from the polarization in society, and it's not getting better. And if you have then these two two candidates, people might lose interest. And you do need people to vote, and you do need people's interest. And I hope, um, yeah, it won't be materialized for the next elections. But I would hope that suddenly yeah. a new person, energetic with the right ideas, would come up. Um, yeah. No, see, seeing both Biden and Trump speak makes me realize that we took for granted Obama's presence, like the just the way he carried himself for speeches. Because when he would speak, immediately you're just like, yeah, I feel a little bit safer. Like my apartment could be on fire, and I'm Obama's speaking on TV, and I'm like, well, I'll probably survive because his voice is just he's he's got that that swagger. So yeah, I mean, he he nailed it in terms of the the presence part um for for the job of president in general i wanted to ask you like do do you think you need to meet a certain threshold as an individual for narcissism in order to even consider running for president or uh winning the position itself like do you need to be a baseline narcissist above the average person to become president in the first place? A certain amount, maybe, but especially research has shown that um, there is a link between certain psychopathic uh, features and American presidents. So within being a psychopath, there, there are different types of psychopathic features. And one of them is this antisocial element, which we discussed earlier. Uh, that is not what American presidents have more, but research has shown that one of the other things I uh, have not yet mentioned that is a typical feature of psychopaths is that they have no fear. And having no fear can lead to, or, or and less empathy also, so this combination can lead to people taking the right decisions in very difficult circumstances. And Mm. um, research has shown that American presidents score much higher than the American uh, average population on um, the lack of evidence and the um, empathy, sorry, and the lack of fear, making them Mm. way more effective as uh, political leaders. 
but they don't have they don't uh, stand out in um, antisocial personality. So mm. that is not what they have, and that makes them. Um, yeah, certain type of psychopath that work well in society rather than the ones that violate the law. So that research she seems to indeed say, yes, you need a certain level of psychopathy, um, but these specific features. And narcissism can also be very helpful because if you are a narcissist, you also strongly believe in yourself. Now, to become the president of the United States, especially the president of the United States being such a big country, you do have a, have to have a strong will, a strong belief, a strong determination. So a certain level of narcissism is very helpful. Um, mm. And I'm not saying that a certain level is very bad if it's sufficiently balanced. Crucial, however, is I do believe is that you can stand criticism because if you can stand criticism, then you can have an inner circle that ultimately um, can put you on the right path whenever you go wrong and could talk to mm. you and you respect your political opponents. As soon as you no mm. longer have that, then it becomes a danger because then you have gotcha. no mechanism to control that. Yeah, there's not there's nothing sort of checking it there's there's no like checks and balances to your behavior no okay I, i'm just gonna run to the bathroom real quick but i'll i'll, I'll be right back i want i wanted to ask you about the the israel hamas war because the obviously the violence in the middle east has reignited recently with the october 7th attacks with hamas uh against israel and there's been a ton of violence and atrocities, both with the October 7th attacks and also with the civilians in Gaza. What type of perpetrators do you see in this Israel-Hamas dynamic? Like, what, what, what stands out to you when you're looking at the people and, and groups that are involved? What stands out to me is if you look at the very ordinary, regular people, then you see that from both sides, they have very legitimate um, aims. Israel, people in Israel want to be safe, don't want to live in fear anymore, and want to be recognized. People in Palestine want the right to self-determination and seen as uh, regular ordinary citizens within their own state and their human rights acknowledgement. So, what I see there is two groups with very legitimate aims. However, the current conflict is decided upon by people with a much more extremist view and point of view, based partially on these legitimate aim, but then made way more extreme. If you look at Hamas, there it comes partially from this legitimate uh, aim self-determination, but they go way beyond that by saying we want Israel to to be destroyed. Um, we want the destruction of Israel and we don't see that they have a right of existence. And then we believe we are allowed to use extreme and excessive violence. So what comes clear there is also certain fanaticism that people come from a very suppressed situation, very difficult life conditions, uh, political, ideological grievances, and then from there 
become more extreme. How would you qualify the perpetrators? Well, some of them will be fanatics who start to believe in extremist ideologies. Others will be avengers um, taking revenge for the difficult situations they're living in. But there will also definitely be people with certain criminal tendencies, certain predators. If you look at the excess of violence on the 7th of October, I wouldn't be surprised if a number at least of these people would be predators because the violence was almost celebrated the way they did it. Mm. And what the sad thing is, is that you see that from a legitimate aim of the Palestinian people in general, you get this extremist group now deciding the agenda. And now, uh, having perpetrated that attack, which led to the retaliatory attacks by uh, by Israel. So it um, put also the Palestinians in a very difficult situation. If you look at the Israeli side, there too you see the legitimate aim to keep the country safe is um, is understandable. But the amount of violence they use to establish that and also in the past. So it's not just the retaliatory bombings now and their aim to try and destroy well their official aim is not to destroy the palestinian people as such but hamas um yeah but the the collateral damage the number of of people killed is is tremendous and it's it's horrific so that that's awful but also if you look at the, the period before that the settlements um, are qualified by international law as an absolute violation of international law. The way Palestinian people were treated, uh, bullied almost, uh, their lives made impossible. Uh, the lack mm. of rights they got. Uh, you can, and the lack of understanding. Right now, I've uh, just finished the autobiography of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu um, Mm. to understand his his way of thinking. And you do see his aim to keep Israel safe, but he believes totally mistakenly, and in fact, you must now also even say criminally, that it is by purely suppressing the Palestinian population so that no one dares to commit an attack anymore, or that no one can commit an attack anymore. The sad thing is, by these bombings, he creates way more grievances, and he creates the fertile breeding ground for many more fanatics to pick up arms and become extremists like Hamas. Yeah. You know, I, I, I had this argument recently with my parents. We were, we were just talking about you know, like dinner table conversation gradually evolves or, you know, devolves depending on how you look at it into politics, war, stuff like that. And just my my view was exactly that, that no matter how many people in Hamas you think you're destroying by bombing Gaza and then as a byproduct killing, I think it's over 25,000 civilians at this point. Uh, and maybe I, I don't know if they killed a thousand Hamas. I, I I don't know if there's even an accurate way to to count who identifies with the group or not. But it's like how many of those uh, kids and young adults 
uh, who see their uncles blown up or who, you know, see their mom burnt alive or like oh, it's just like horrific acts of violence. How many of those kids wouldn't have grown up hating Jews or, or wouldn't have grown up to join these militant groups that are now going to consider it their life's purpose to get back at the people who did this to their families? And and I know it's like it, it's also an extremely tough situation from Israel's side as well. It's like you, you have to signal that there's going to be consequences for for coming into our country and murdering and kidnapping uh you know murdering a thousand people and kidnapping over 200 like you have to signal yeah this you know this is never going to happen we're we're going to you know make you feel the the repercussions of this but then it's like how much signal is too much to where it's it's creating a complete massacre yeah and this is way too much because it's the opposite of what they aim to achieve. Because even if they uh, kill and most <coughs> current Hamas uh, warriors, they will create new ones and who will be just as extremist as the others because of what is happening now. So it's the reverse what they want to achieve. You you cannot r- repress people uh, in the, um, for their whole lives trying to keep it down. People want to be respected and uh, want to have their own human rights acknowledged. And if you don't do that, um, you will keep having extremist and terrorist attacks. Are, are you familiar with Meg Smacker and her work interviewing ex-jihadists in Saudi Arabia? No, no. I have read so, quite a lot of other work, but not this one. Okay. So there's a, um, there's, there's a few podcasts she's appeared on that I listened to. And she also has a documentary called Jihad Rehab. And she went to, I believe it was Saudi Arabia, where there's essentially a rehab for people who used to be jihadists to uh, recover from their uh, their jihad ways, I guess is the best way I could put it, to re-enter society. And Meg Smacker goes and she interviews and sits down with people and, and she's talking to them. Uh, and, and she figures out that the, you know, stereotypical reason that most people think people join a, a a terrorist group or terrorist organization the the cause like the belief the you know like i'm doing this for for god and my people is just one reason and she goes into i believe it's three other reasons why people might join a terrorist group like uh profit like you mentioned in the book what needing money uh a sense of adventure just like needing something to do uh, a lot of people said, you know, my uncle was in it and I needed like, like I, I needed a job and he re- recruited me. And so when I think about the the Israel Hamas conflict, like not only is it a breeding ground for hate, but it's also a breeding ground of like people's houses are destroyed. They're going to need money to, you know, do something to build it back up to move somewhere else, you know. There's going to be a bunch of people who are affected that are also joining. So some kid that might not necessarily have joined out of the cause his brother joins and he's like, Oh, I need something to do. Or maybe you're bored at home and you're, you know, you want to have an adventure. It's like all these things. Um, I just thought it was fascinating. And it also seems to overlap with a lot of the work that you've done analyzing terrorism and these, uh, 
these terrorist organizations and perpetrators that there's not just this one main reason of I am I'm fighting for the cause, but there's also so many other dynamics in play. Yeah, absolutely. I do think organizations like Hamas are strongly driven, obviously, by extremism and uh, by political fanaticism, uh, in this case, Islamism. So the ideology plays a, a big role. But the fact that the organization as such ideology plays such a role doesn't mean that all the people who are in it are motivated by that. And just as mm. you say, people can be motivated by so many different things that they can then join uh, Hamas. And what you see, like we discussed Bulel earlier um, from the Nice attack, he was a very disturbed, violent uh, man. There are probably also in Hamas right now, or let's say in, in Gaza, there were definitely a certain percentage of the population is disturbed, is violent, is more aggressive than others. Well, these people very likely have joined Hamas, not at a, out of ideological conviction, but because that gave them the opportunities to be and behave very violently and sadistically. And mm. uh, so you see that once an organization with a certain ideology, in this case extremism, takes power, then many others join for many different reasons. And I can absolutely mm. confirm what you say. There are even people who just do it out of profit, people who do it because it's adventurous, people who do it because their friends join, people who do it because they're bored and have nothing else to do. Uh, because they would avenge someone. There can be so many reasons. But then Hamas mm. decides where they go, and then they join. And um, yeah, that's the, the the sad thing. Yeah, you you mentioned on your podcast, uh, which is also the 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 title is the same as the byline of the book, right? Terribly and terrifyingly normal, which everyone should check out. You mentioned that the most shocking perpetrator to you is Joseph Mengele. So I, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, first, who, who is Joseph Mengele and what type of perpetrator is he What he, and what made him the most shocking to you? Joseph Mengele was a Nazi doctor in, uh, in Auschwitz. Uh, so the, um, in this uh, concentration slash death camp, he was uh, partially in charge of the selections where when the Jews arrived by chain, ch uh, trains, he selected and said who could still live and who would go straight to the gas chamber. But the most uh, striking thing that made him very infamous were the medical experiments he conducted on um, the inmates and especially the experiments on the twins. So he did things to two twins and then looked at the uh, consequences of that. Um, but what I found so shocking about him, um, the experiments, of course, were horrendous. And he might have had some sadistic pleasure in him. But the main reason he did it was because he wanted to become a famous professor. And he felt that these inmates were going to die anyway, so why not use them for his experiments? So a total lack also of, of empathy and a total 
self-serving need. And he, I believe he did it uh, in order to profit from them, from their weakness, from their uh, the impossible situation they were living in. And he took advantage of them. He just saw it as a, a tremendous opportunity. And he was, um, his, some of his colleagues uh, who were back then professors in institutes or were scientists, um, helped him with ideas. They didn't do the experiments themselves, but helped him with the ideas. And he sent the results to them. And that I found shocking that he did that in order to make himself a career. And maybe because I myself am a professor, reading that, that someone did that in order to gain scientific fame and to become a professor was kind of horrifying. Mm. And I was, yeah, okay, you do research, you try to to make a difference, but in this way, would you go that far? And that lack of empathy, that, that shocked me. And that's why he shocked me. It's one of the people who shocked me most. I think I would have found it easier if he would have been 100% clear a sadist. And I could have said, well, yeah, he's a sadist and he is biologically determined to do this. But yeah. he found it perfectly normal. And there were other uh, doctors who did similar experiments um, who gained much less fame than he did uh, for whatever reason. He's more the symbol of, of the Nazi doctors, but that shocked me. Yeah. I mean, just knowing about the the infamous twin experiments and going through the details of that you would think that someone who does that has to be driven by sadism to some extent and the fact that he was driven by like you said becoming a professor you know tenure you know getting a job is in a way makes it much worse and i'm i'm sure for you it it hits home as well being a professor I, there there was a line in the book uh I believe it was from Stalin about being a sadist. And he said something like the best way to fall asleep is to just knock someone on the head and and watch them. Essentially, like it, it helps me to fall asleep to just knock someone on the head and get in a good shot. And then I pass out. Uh, you you'd think that Mengele would also feel similar to that since he seems so at peace with what he's doing. But I guess... Uh, the evidence points to the contrary. Yeah, yeah. He even when he fled Auschwitz at some point when it was on the on the verge of being liberated, he had to flee uh, Auschwitz. He made sure to take all his papers with him, putting himself in more danger to take all the papers with him to not get to not lose the results of his research. Yeah, and he realized how unique. Um, the situation was the way he abused uh, the inmates and yeah I, I found that shocking and in general I found the profiteers maybe the most shocking uh, perpetrators to some extent because they're they're yeah. so invested in their self-interest yeah I, I found the the quote from Stalin by the way is uh, the, the sweetest thing in life is to mark a victim, prepare the blow carefully, strike hard, and then go to bed and sleep peacefully. And if you replace Stalin with Mangala, I could easily see Mangala also feeling like that. But I guess that's just the, the difference in psychologies between the two. Yeah. 
Yeah. So as we start to end off, I and I wish we could go through all 14 in detail because it is fascinating. And just because of the the uh, limit of time, we can't do that, at least in one episode. But I did want to get into the followers because they are the biggest group. And I, I, I want to ask you, like, how, how do you how do you explain the follower? What what drives the follower at heart? Uh, to not stand out. The follower is actually, I would say, mostly driven by a sort of social fear not to stand apart from the group. And it was very clearly shown in the book by Christopher Browning on Reserve Police Battalion 101 during the Second World War. These were a bit older policemen who were then put together in in one uh, squad. They were not fanatical Nazis, but were generally supporting the the regime, but not in a way that you could say they're anti-Semites or driven by hatred. And then unexpectedly, they were asked to start rounding up and killing Jews. And very remarkably, in that group, um, their uh, leader, Wilhelm von Trapp was his name, if I remember correctly, he gave them the choice to step forward and say, no, I'm not going to do that, or to just uh, follow the orders and do it. And von Trapp even told them, I don't uh, believe in this order. I, I find it a horrible order. Nevertheless, only very few men stepped forward and most uh, continued. And later they were tried, a number of them were tried after the war. And then they were asked, why didn't you step forward? And they said, I didn't want to be seen as a coward. <laughs> like I was, mm. wow, you don't want to be seen as a coward. And so you kill many people. But still, that was the case. And there, and that I find, um, yeah, saddening, but also in a way fascinating that apparently our social, the, the, yeah, being socially seen as a coward is such a strong, powerful motivation that you not want to be seen like that. And they also further explained, like, we were fighting this war and we didn't want to let down our colleagues. And and then you're like, from the outside, you're like, wow. And so you kill people. How can that be such a strong force? But it is apparently yeah. it is, and that shows could, the, could the you, yeah that shows oh, sorry, the the, uh, the strength of the social dynamic, the social situation. Are are the followers the only group of perpetrators where their main uh, their driving force is a negative motivation? Like the the other groups, they say, "I want this, I I want X, I want Y, and Z," but the the followers, I don't want this like i don't want to be seen as this i don't it's it's like a negative versus positive motivation i guess for them it would definitely i'm now quickly looking over the various types uh i hadn't thought of it that way but i i believe to a large extent you're right um the other exception is the cop what i call the compromised perpetrators but that are the Mm. ones who are really physically threatened or who really are in a very vulnerable position so um so there the fear (laughs) and the negative reasons are even clearer than with the the follower Mm. 
So yes, you're right. Follower stands out in uh, in that way. On the other hand, uh, perpetrators like the true believers, they are driven by wanting to be part of something bigger. So yes, there is a positive motivation. However, it comes also from more a fear and the true believers are, are the people who follow, uh, let's say, Hitler, um, other charismatic leaders. And they do so because they prefer to put themselves at the service of someone else or to completely subdue mm. themselves. And that can be, and there I made in the book a link also to the book by Eric Fromm, uh, The Fear of Freedom, that there are also quite a lot of people who fear having the choice, having the freedom, having the responsibility, and they prefer to just follow a leader. So in their case, true believers are driven by something positive, but yet it follows from a weakness and a fear, which is underlying mm. the holding on to something positive. So fear plays a role for more people. Mm. What are the most meaningful lessons that you've learned over the past 30 years from studying perpetrators? Most importantly, that I believe the perpetrators are ordinary people. There are few exceptions, the, the, the predators, the very sadistic ones, the deranged ones. Um, but that is a very small minority. Most perpetrators are ordinary people. So that is lesson number one. Lesson number two is that um, almost everyone can become a perpetrator and that you transform into being a perpetrator. Me saying that every all of us can become perpetrators doesn't mean that you and me right now would do just any horrendous act. No, right now we are in a context mm. where we wouldn't do that. But if this context changes and we are put in a very different context, a situation of a very strongly polarized society, a war, um, if we put us in the conflict of, of Israel-Hamas, that could change mm. and then we could transform. And I do believe it's a transformation process that you actually really change. You start When you start to commit violence, then... What I've learned is that almost each and every perpetrator feels horrible about that. So they feel bad about what they did. They're like, they're shocked. They thought they do the right thing. And then suddenly they're confronted with the victim. And almost all mm. of them feel horribly bad about that. But then, and that's lesson number three, I guess, we human beings find it very hard to acknowledge that we did something wrong. So what do we prefer? to <clears throat> rationalize and justify what we do. And we can go to such long and extreme length to rationalize and justify extreme behavior. And one of the most striking examples I had in the book, uh, which comes from Christopher Browning's uh, Police Battalion 101, there was one perpetrator who said, yeah, but I only killed kids. You're like, uh, you only killed kids. Aren't those people the worst? But then he yeah. explains. He said, no, because um, my neighbor killed the mother. And then I reasoned with myself, the kid cannot live without the mother. So I killed the kid. And in his mind, he therefore transformed murder and genocide into some kind mm. of mercy killing. Because there wasn't a mm. life for the kid. And that 
I do believe is also a very important lesson to realize how we can trick ourselves in doing something really wrong and yet convincing ourselves that's the right thing. So the main lesson for me is to always continuously critically reflect on what you're doing. Not in a way that your entire behavior is hampered, but always take a step back and think like, am I doing the right thing? Am I not in one of those? I remember you said at the beginning of the podcast, when you put someone on a train in a certain direction with Eichmann, that you go into that direction and always realize like, look, pause, which train am I on? Which direction am I heading into? Yeah. And that you always need yeah. to do to do that. So these, yeah. I would say, are the most important lessons from research on perpetrators in general. The one spe- more specifically from the book is the fact that there are still many different perpetrators and the way they interact. I'm sometimes I'm struck with uh, in my past career. Uh, I sometimes met scholars who heard me talk about the typology and they said, oh, you've got it all wrong. They're all criminals. And then it turned out they did research where they indeed investigated a criminal group, a criminal gang that um, played a role in a certain war. And then I say, yeah, okay, your Mm. group are indeed all criminals. And as someone else studied bureaucrats and said, oh, they're all driven by obedience. Yes, that Mm. group, yes. But... Um, and I hope that's the added value of my book, that you have the overall more helicopter view and say, yeah, we have the followers, we have the deranged, we have the criminals, we have the profiteers, the careerists, and all yeah. these different types and how they interact and interrelate. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's also something I was thinking about, when, especially when I was going through the part of the book where uh, – you go into detail on the transformation aspect and how most perpetrators are shocked the first time they commit a violent act. And then they use multiple forms of, of different mechanisms to, to rationalize that first act. It seems like if you could get to a perpetrator, you know, either right before or right after that first act and, and give them some sort of introspection tools or, or self-awareness tools it seems like there's a small gap where you could severely alter for the better the the trajectory like and you don't even have to do it that much because if you have a train and you shift it by one degree it doesn't really seem like it's going to end up in a different place but if it goes on for miles and miles and miles you'll be hundreds of miles apart with the two destinations yeah so that that i thought was extremely fascinating yeah absolutely true and uh i'm glad you got that message from the book because that was also one of the most important things and if you go in this wrong direction with the rationalizations and the justifications it becomes a psychological trap and Mm. what i mean by that is that actually once you start to rationalize and justify what you're doing then going on will reinforce the justification and the rationalization. Whereas if you, let's say you got these doubts after you killed one person, then you kill 10 more. And um, if you would then stop doing what you do, then you have to face your own guilt that you killed 10 people. 
that's way more mm. difficult than face the guilt when you kill just one. Yeah. And the very reason we have these rationalizations, justifications is to soothe the conscience. But mm. this is harder to do, and that's why I call it psychological trap after you kill 10, because then the psychological trap makes it almost impossible to, after the 10th, acknowledge what you're doing. So the best way to further rationalize is continue what you're doing. And then okay. you head off in that direction, and then it's almost impossible uh, to stop. And what also all perpetrators say is that at some point they don't feel anything about what they're doing anymore. They just get used to it. Yeah. There's that uh, the famous quote by Nietzsche about looking into the abyss where he says, beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. Do you ever feel that when you spend so much time gazing into the abyss, studying perpetrators, that it's making you at a higher risk to become a perpetrator yourself? I hope to believe the opposite. Uh, and I explain why. Um, I try to, in my research, I really try to understand perpetrators. And what I realized is that they're shutting down their empathy and trying to live in a certain tunnel vision where they really believe what they're doing, rationalizing, justifying everything, and then not feeling for the victims anymore. And I thought, well, if I believe everyone can become a perpetrator, then I should believe I can become a perpetrator. Um, so then I learned this in theory. And uh, I also love doing sports. So I know in sports, people um, psychologically think about a certain movement to perfectionize it. Well, what I tried mm -hmm. to do then is really understand that. And I tried to, well, how could you close down your feelings. So it was all purely a mental exercise at home. But I tried to mentally figure myself um, and not committing horrendous crimes, but walking around where a lot of violence would take place and whether I could narrow my own feeling down that I no longer feel the empathy for the victims. And I must say it was shocking to experience one fraction of a second that after a very long practice, I could do that. And mm. that made me shockingly aware, yes, so I can do it by a mental practice for a fraction of a second, but that was enough for me to realize in certain circumstances, I will be capable of that. And probably a lot of people, by, by just forcing yourself not to think about the, the um, perpetrators, not to feel empathy. So... At that moment, you could say, yeah, I, I looked evil in the eye and, and, and saw, saw the reflection. But that experience also gave me the awareness not to look for excuses for myself and to see myself as, as better or different. And yeah. the only thing I hope, and that's why I keep doing this kind of research, because, yeah, first of all, I still find it interesting that new stuff comes up where I want to know, want to understand. But also, I hope that with my knowledge and the knowledge of all the other studying perpetrators will help us better understand how we are transformed in perpetrators, how these processes work. And by understanding that, I hope that we can get ourselves, and me included, better prepared to stop it. Yeah. It's yeah, it's almost like a perpetrator meditation where 
if only for a split second, you're taking a peek behind the curtain to see what's there and, and see what your capabilities are and, and identify with another group of people or part of the world where much greater violence is occurring. I, I Do you think that could be a tool to help prevent perpetrators from fully transforming is like these meditative style, I don't know if you call it like an empathy meditation or just like a self-awareness meditation, like things like that, that get you thinking about what it would be like to prevent it from the future? I definitely think that understanding that process, I'm not, I don't know much about meditation, so I wouldn't know if that would help, but uh, it might, but definitely the understanding in whatever way, would it be via meditation or understanding or letting people see that? I do think that would help. And uh, two reasons. The, the the first is that one of the biggest dangers, as I said at some point in the podcast, perpetrators never see themselves as perpetrators. They always see themselves as people doing the right thing, fighting for a better world uh, or protecting themselves. So they see themselves as good and their victims as bad. Um, mm. There's almost no exception to that. But that's also the danger. If you always see yourself as the good person fighting the bad person, then you see your causes as the legitimate causes. And then that's believing yourself to be good no matter what, because you fight bad, is the, is the main recipe for evil. Because then you no longer critically look at your own behavior. Mm. And um, so we do have to realize that we could be fighting for the legitimate goals, but nevertheless use the absolute totally wrong means that could lead us to evil. And one of the most striking things I found in about the Millet massacre during the Vietnam War, where an American unit killed about 500 uh, innocent, unarmed uh, Vietnamese civilians. And they believed themselves to be preparing for a fight against the Viet Cong. So they went to a village um, thinking they were on a kill-and-destroy mission because that was supposed to be a Viet Cong stronghold. But once they came there, it was just old men, uh, women, and children. Nevertheless, they started shooting and killed 500 people. So that was a horrendous war crime. Um, and... But they did it being in a war, thinking they're the good people fighting evil. And what struck me most in the documentary that is available online, uh, Four Hours in Millet, it's called, one of the American soldiers at the end of the documentary said, it was a sad face, we were supposed to be the good guys. And I do believe that mm. exactly is the problem. If you go into a conflict believing you are the good guy and the other one is the bad guy, then you no longer see what you are doing. You just before asked me about Israel Hamas, if uh, if you read the book of, of, of Netanyahu, you really see that he strongly believes himself to be the good guy protecting Israel. And to some extent, that is his aim, and it's a legitimate aim, but the means he's using right now, he is turned into a perpetrator because he's using such mm. excessive violence and even before the repression of the Palestinians. So that makes it very uh, tricky, actually. Uh, Hamas may be the same. So that is one thing. We should never see ourselves as, as good no matter what, because that's the best recipe for evil. The other thing I wanted to, to say to that, if uh, I at some point learned that um, child molesters, 
who uh, molest and sexually abuse children, they get into programs where they learn to recognize their own behavior and to recognize what triggers them and how to stop that and uh, what they should do rather than molesting the child, but walking away or never getting in a certain situation. So they learn to recognize the signals. And that makes me Mm. believe that knowing a lot about this uh, transformation process or when and how and why people get into those circumstances, if you can make all soldiers aware of the dangers of that and the warning signs, if they could recognize certain situations, then they would better be better prepared not to commit these crimes themselves is is the the child molester uh, group or study you mentioned has that been successful are, are child molesters able to successfully walk away from probable encounters with the training i don't know exactly if most some or most uh will be able to walk away um i had because that's not my area of expertise but i i heard mm-hmm. about those studies that at least some could work or walk away now i haven't followed up on what percentage that is but the mere fact that it's some already means to me there's something in that something that makes that successful and I do mm. know that in the Dutch army, people who are sent to uh, different areas of the world um, on a mission, uh, that they're shown the Millet massacre video and say, well, look, be aware that mm. this doesn't happen. And I'm not sure, I haven't been able to ask them, is it just showing, giving them the warning or actually learning them how to signal the different the, um, uh how do you say the um, warning signs that you're going into the wrong direction? Because if it's the yeah. latter, I do think it's very good. If it's merely the warning, yeah, then it's not sufficient. Are Are you optimistic about the future of humanity, knowing how slippery the slope is to become a perpetrator and, and how easily it can, you know, you can fall into it? Well, I must admit when I... Um, heard and saw about the 7 October attack and then the uh, immense violence after that. That was the first time when I was teaching a class and my students asked me about uh, about the conflict and what to do. Uh, that was one class where I didn't feel hope. I was so depressed and seeing, well, this makes the conflict, which is already so complex, almost impossible to solve. So there are moments where I do f- don't feel optimism, but um, I do think as of a person, I'm a fairly optimistic person. So then I feel, well, let's just not give up and keep doing the research, trying to disseminate the results, get people interested in this kind of research, understanding and I absolutely also want to believe that ultimately that can make a change, but it won't be easy. And uh, there are moments when it's very hard to stay optimistic, but in essence, I am and uh, try uh, to do things. So for instance, this podcast, I'm already very happy to be here on your podcast and people listening. Um, That might be people then who better understand and more people get interested in perpetrator research. And ultimately that might, uh, might help in the long run. Yeah. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation and for, you know, just for my own 
knowledge and not to mention uh, the people listening, people watching, that this is not only extremely uh, useful uh, when, it, when it comes to your work, and I, and I appreciate your work so much, but it's also super interesting. Like the, It's one thing to uh, want to make humanity better, but then you have to make people wanna, want to learn it. And the more we're talking about it, the more I want to just continue you know, going down these rabbit holes. So I, I hope that people listening to this will check out your book, your podcast. Uh, wh- where are the best places for people to follow you and to, to keep up with your work and, and to check those things out? Um, well, thanks for the, the nice words and kind words. I'm very happy about that. Of course. Um, the, the podcast uh, is on Apple Podcast, on Spotify, so all on the regular platforms. And the podcast is called Terribly and Terrifyingly Normal. Um, uh, and the main focus is indeed uh, perpetrators of mass atrocities. And we, um, we try to get uh, a guest in every episode. So there were two episodes with just me, but most of the episodes, uh, me and the host, um, Nicola Kwaadvlieg, and um, but most episodes have a guest where we try to delve in certain issues. So we had one recent on uh, gender, another one on populism. One of uh, I'm trying to get someone on the effects of power. So the podcast uh, can be viewed on all these major platforms. Yeah, and otherwise I have a website and LinkedIn. Uh, my book is just out. So these are things where where people could could follow me but hopefully also others who do research on on perpetrators yeah and for people listening and watching all those things will be linked in the podcast description i'm also gonna mention in the intro before the episode actually starts so people can check it out and again thank you that this uh, this conversation flew by uh i looked down and it was, you know, barely over an hour. And now we're coming up uh, over two and a half. So that, that's always a, a sign that it was a, a good chat. So thank you. Thank you again. And I, I really appreciate your work and your time. Thanks a lot for uh, for having me and allowing me uh, to be on this podcast. It was a pleasure and uh, enjoyed talking to you. 